I'm going to be looking at uh, one solitary verse this morning. Um, It's found in Romans, a well-worn verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 8. Many of you have it memorized, and if you don't, I'll have it on the screen behind me. But before we uh, consider this morning's topic, I thought I'd share with you um, kind of a sobering announcement. It's not really an announcement. It's more of letting you, the family of Parkway, know of something that happened last night. And that is one of our our senior uh, sisters, uh, Glenda Hanks um, choked on a piece of food at Outback Steakhouse, and um, they weren't able to dislodge it. And so there were a period of, I don't know how many minutes, where she was without air. And she was with her family, uh, the Martlett family and the kids. And anyway, she is now in um, ICU on complete uh, ventilation and so forth. So it's, um, you know, she loves Christ, and anybody who knows her knows that she is uh, just loves life and such a... Um, spunky person. Anyway, I thought it would be appropriate for us to pray for them and just encourage you to pray for them, pray for strength and, and calmness. It's, uh, it's sad in one sense that it happens in the Christmas season that this takes place. On the other hand, it kind of brings a sobriety to, to Christmas time. And we just so easily focus on lights and glitter and we forget that Christ came to save us from sin and death. And uh, just a potent reminder that Christ is sovereign over death and life. And um, so, We're going to pray for them right now, and then we'll um, consider this morning's topic. Father, I just ask we come to you as your people, and we pray and intercede on behalf of the Marlette family and the Hanks family and Glenda herself. And we're thankful, Lord, that your your love um, has provided a way um, out of death, and and we're thankful that Glenda loves you and trusts you, and and no matter what, her soul is secure um, in this age as well as the age to come. We pray for strength and peace for the Marlette family as they struggle with what to do next, and, and um, just pray that you would do your work and that you would bring a sense of um, extra measure of faith to them as they uh, struggle through this time. And for Glenda herself, Lord, we pray, if it be your will, that you would bring her back to us, but we know that your, your work is perfect. And so we just lift this situation up to you and just ask that you would bless um, your people with comfort and faith and peace. And I pray for the others in this room who have lost um, precious people in the past and are missing them. I pray that you would be their peace as well this Christmas and just a reminder of the eternal hope that we have in Christ Jesus and um, just to savor it and hold on to it and embrace it and love it and to live in its light. We just thank you for being our Father, for loving us, caring about us, um, every aspect of life. So we pray that your spirit would right now speak to your people about your love Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, early this fall, I, I had the leadership of the women's ministry team approach me and ask me if I had considered speaking for their, for their women's Christmas event. And um, I said yes, eventually with fear and trepidation, you know, talking to a whole group of people. And um, since then, I've had a number of requests on the part of some of the women who were there and um, some of the men who were sitting in the back if I would consider redoing it. Uh, in this context where everybody's gathered. And um, so the powers that be have persuaded me to do so. So those of you ladies who were there, if you want to go out and get some Starbucks right now, that's fine. You know, I'm kidding. (laughs) Um, I always need to hear about the love of God over and over and over again. But um, that's what I wanted to um, bring to you this morning. It's the fourth Sunday of Advent. Advent means coming. And um, on the fourth Sunday, traditionally, it's the celebration of the love of God in Christ. And that's what the ladies asked me to speak on back two Wednesdays ago. And so um, 
John and Dan said, yeah, that'd be a good idea. Let's, let's redo that message. And I'll tell you, just coming up to the whole concept of the love of God, it's, it's a challenging task because not only is it massive, I mean, it is a massive topic, but the other challenge is a lot of Christians are so familiar with the concept of the love of God that it, it, it almost loses its sense of depth um, to find out how do you look at God's love in a, in a way that's new or not necessarily new, but something that kind of breaks us out of the familiarity that we, that we have with regards to God's love. It's, it's unfortunately true that familiarity does breed contempt, and if not contempt, sometimes boredom. And the love of God should never be boring at all. So the challenge for me was, how do I come at this topic in a way that kind of looks at an eternal truth that doesn't change, but in a fresh new way that inspires the soul and gets us to think about it? And we are just fragile, frail people and are easily bored by amazing topics. And so just to kind of bring it into a new light, that was my prayer. And so what I did with the ladies and I'm going to do with you this morning is to come at the whole topic of the love of God in Christ from the vantage point of the problem of it. Now, it's not a problem to God, but, but it is a problem to us, for anybody who's really wrestled it, not to the ground, but wrestled with it, in terms of understanding it, and believing it, and experiencing it. So it's, as strange as it may sound, I'm going to kind of take you to the love of God by way of problem. And if you'll hang with me, I, I hope that it'll throw new light um, and inspiration into your soul regarding the, the love of God in Christ. Now, one of the things that the Bible does to get us a sense, give us a sense of God's love is, is to give it analogies to human relationships. Like, for example, Psalm 103 tells us that, that as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So what we experience in our earthly lives can, are, are analogies of love. And those analogies have point of comparison, but also points of departure so that we can come to understand a little bit of love what, how God loves us by looking at the dynamic of human relationships. And um, I now am father of three, and so I have a better understanding of what it means to love children. But I had a blessing in terms of understanding love and what it feels like of having two amazing Christian parents, still alive today, just great people. And their love provided for me and my two sisters a sense of safety and security and satisfaction. And I think that's what love should do. I have one memory that stands out more than all the others in terms of that feeling of safety, security, and satisfaction in the context of love, which my family was staying in a, a one-room cabin up in the mountains. It's a place we've been going to for now 37 years. And I remember laying on the top bunk. I was in the top bunk. My baby sister was on the bottom bunk. And I remember laying there um, thinking, this is perfect, and I never want it to change. Um, earlier that night, I think it was 10 or 11, earlier that evening we went fishing, and back then you could, your limit was 10 trout, and um, our whole family limited out, so we had 40 trout, so it was an amazing time. You know, kid 10 or 11 with a big old huge stringer, it was just awesome. We came home, some of them we froze, or back at the cabin, we, we froze some, we ate some, we played some games, and, and at the end of this amazing night, and of course I had no job, I had no responsibilities, um, my mom was laying on her side of the bed, as she always did, reading a history book with her glasses on, and that's what she did when she went to bed. My dad was reading the Bible and listening to Glenn, or not Glenn Campbell, it was John Denver. How those two go together, Bible reading and John Denver, I don't know. But that's what he did, and I just remember thinking at that moment, I mean, it's crystal it, it clear as day, 
right now that I just thought, I never want this to change. I can't imagine my parents ever dying because this is just, there's no lack. I felt that way. And, uh, and that is the closest that I have come to experiencing what the Bible talks about as, as unconditional love, the closest. Now, I had that sense of security and safety and satisfaction, and that's what love does is provide a shelter for those things. Um, but then as I moved on in life, I had some of that shaken. You know, come to 17 years old, I'm in the delayed entry program to go into the Marine Corps, and um, my mom, uh, in a moment of exasperation, because I was just being a, a punk, um, a malcontent, incorrigible, just a, a jerk, my mom said to me at the kitchen table, she says, I can't wait till you leave. You know, 10 years old, I couldn't, I could have spray painted that time, frozen it, and just said, this, I could live right here. And now, here we are at 17, and my mom wants me out of the house. And I remember, in retrospect, looking back, that shook me. Now, I know she still loved me, but I didn't feel the same safety, security, and satisfaction in that love. <laughs> I can't wait till you get out of here. Now, to my mom's credit, you know, I deserved it, however you want to use that word, deserved it. Um, but it's taught me things, that things like that, experiences like that, and that is the truth that um, human relationships are not sources of unconditional love. Because humans are broken. I am, you are, and we change. I had changed, my mother had changed, and we're both broken people. And yet we look oftentimes to human relationships as sources of unconditional love, which kind of moves us in the direction that I'm moving, and that is the unconditional love of the Lord. But as soon as we come to the idea of God's unconditional love, we run into uh, a problem of understanding. Because the Bible teaches about God's love in ways that shows variation. We sometimes want to think of God's love as one-dimensional. We put all the verses into one understanding of God's love, but the Bible gives us various dimensions of it. And two of those dimensions that are highly important to get your mind around are the difference between what we might call God's general love and his specific, particular, or um, selective love. On the one hand, the Bible teaches us that God has a general or universal love for all of his creatures, for all of his creation. So there is a general way in which God loves people, whether they're believers or unbelievers, whether they're Christian or Hindu or um, Muslim, whether they're straight or gay, that God has a general love for all living people and all his creatures. That is um, taught to us in places like John 3.16. It says, for God so loved the world. And the way John uses world throughout his gospel I think it must be interpreted as a general love for the world in darkness and lost, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's also brought up in the teachings of Jesus when he teaches his disciples to love your enemies. And the reason that's given is because um, God shows that kind of love to those who are wicked. So he provides rain and sunshine on the righteous and the wicked. So God shows love, a general love, or we might call it a common grace, to all people. But there's, and I, I don't know exactly how to describe it here, so those of you who want theological precision, precision, give me a little bit of flexibility here. But that general love has limitations. Could we call it temporal love? 
Because in that verse, John 3.16, those who do not believe perish. In other words, they were removed from the shelter or the experience or the blessing of, of God's love. Hell is not a place where people experience the love of God. So however you want to describe it, this general love God has for his creatures, his creation, there is a point at which it stops or terminates. So it has limitations. It's temporal. Again, however you want to describe it, that is God's general love. And there are amazing implications of that truth as to how we treat people who don't believe. But that's for another time. But then there's this other stream of teaching in the Bible regarding God's love, which is a selective or particular kind of love that he has for a select group of people. Now, this may sound controversial, but it's from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, and you can't get around it. It is so strong. That God has chosen a people for himself, and the love that he has for those people, this selective love, is eternal. It's from everlasting to everlasting. It is irrevocable, it is never diminished, and it will never fail. That is captured in, like, Ephesians chapter 3, or excuse me, chapter 1. This is um, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where it says, In love, he predestined us for adoption. That means he chose ahead of time. And the verse right before that says that even as he chose us before the foundation of the world. So he selected people before there was ever a sunbeam that warmed the earth. A people. And those people could never be removed as the objects of his love. And that's the same love that's in view in Romans 8 when we read that neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. It's inseparable. That is a love that really can only be explained as God's selective love for a particular people that he has chosen. And that love is unconditional. Now, let me make just a side point there that I think is important to make. And that is that this idea of God's selective love that winds its way from the beginning to the end of the Bible, that it never functions to exclude or to keep people out. It never functions that way when you find it brought up in Scripture. It functions in Scripture to secure those who are in so that God's people know that his love will never leave me nor forsake me. I can always count on it. It's steadfast, immovable, and unfailing, so I trust in it. It's solid. That's how it functions in Scripture, is to secure those who are inside this people group, this church, his bride. It also functions to humble us and strip us from any sense of self-righteousness as if God chose us because we're smarter or better. And it, at the same time, exalts the pure grace of his love. That's how it functions. It functions positively, to secure, to humble, and exalt God's grace. So, in my view, whoever will may come. You hear, God opens your eyes, and you believe, and you become part of this eternal object of God's love. That means what I'm about, and that little theological part was necessary for what I'm about to say now, which is why I covered those two streams, because the second stream is what I'm going to focus on. God's unconditional, eternal, irrevocable love for us 
selective group of people. Which means, in what I'm about to say, I'm talking to the body of Christ. What I'm about to say applies to those who believe. Because you are the object of his eternal, irrevocable, unconditional love. But, if you happen to be visiting here, a friend has brought you, maybe you came to see one of the baptisms, and you know that you don't believe this stuff. I hope and I pray that by the time I say amen, perhaps in a work of grace, God will speak to you. And you'll say, yes, I believe in that love. I want to believe in that love. And you will become a part of God's eternal bride or people. So I, I have hope for even those who don't believe that you'll hear God's voice in this. So that being said, that is kind of the, what we might call the theological or problem or understanding of the two aspects of God's love, but it's the second one I want to focus on now. And here we come into the problem we have in terms of experience, which has two parts too. That is, in the circles that I run of people who, who are genuine believers, oftentimes it's not a problem of just understanding God's love, it's a problem of believing and experiencing it. As people that I share with, they struggle trusting and knowing that God really loves me. And I think there's two reasons why we struggle with that. One is the innate sense of unworthiness that we carry around within us. And everybody, if you took an honest look at yourself, um, realizes that we have a sense of unworthy, that we're screwed up and flawed. We do. Now, we can deal with that by justifying it or denying it or by deferring blame to somebody else, but an honest look at your own soul just makes you realize... I, I, there's, I am unworthy of, uh, of love. So that's, that's part of why we struggle, because we think, how could God love us? Because I'm screwed up. That's part of it. Another part as to why we struggle with the love of God, believing it and experiencing it, is because the collective experience of our human relationships teaches us that love is fundamentally conditional. Now, we wouldn't say it like that. We like to talk about unconditional love between believers and husbands and wives and so forth. But the fact of the matter is when you kind of get to the root of human relationships and how they function, they all function on conditions. They just do. So take marriage, for example. Um, if you're married, you'll understand that. If you're not, you probably have had a boyfriend or girlfriend. So you can, if you haven't had a boyfriend or girlfriend and your mom dad don't, don't want you to have one, then you can think of a good friend. Um, and that is, you know, what was it that brought you two together in marriage? Well, the fact of the matter is you go back to the beginning, you realize that there were certain condi conditions of attraction that drew you to each other. Maybe if you happen to be a wife, you, you know, you saw that he was tall, dark, and handsome. And if he wasn't tall, dark, and handsome, maybe he was witty or funny or um, smart or he was a powerful leader or he's had certain spiritual qualities about him that drew you to him. But the bottom line is there were conditions of attraction that led you to him and vice versa. Maybe it was the green eyes and the brown hair. Maybe it was the adventurous spirit that you had. Maybe it was how you looked. You were beautiful. You were shapely. There are a lot of conditions of attraction that detracted him to you. And when those things aligned and you decided, hey, we want to take this to the next level and you got married, you got married. You said, I do. But you look back and you realize that your entire relationship was formed on certain conditions being met. And there's no way of getting around that. And I know that we carry that truth in our soul. We know that. Which is why we don't put blindfolds on, you know, in terms of looking for a spouse. Walk onto college campus, feel our way around, and find somebody. It's like, this is the person. You take your, 
you know, blindfold off, and it's somebody three times your age, or it's somebody that looks like Barney Fife or, or Urkel. It just doesn't work that way. The whole foundation of marriage is built on conditions being met, conditions of attraction. We know that. That's true in friendships, too. You look at the people that you find yourself close friends with, and not everybody has an infinite number of best friends. There's, a, there's reasons why some people are close to you and others are not. And history really has nothing to do with it. Neither does family genetics. <laughs> some of us wish we didn't have family, you know? But what explains why some people are close and other people are distant is because there are certain qualities in the person you chose as your friend that you like. Now, you may not have liked all the qualities, but there's enough affinity and commonality that you want to be with them as a friend. And same thing, they apparently saw qualities in you, affinities, commonalities, that they wanted to be friends with you. And based upon those things, you formed a friendship. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that's the way it is. That explains why some people you keep at an arm's distance and other people are close. There are unspoken conditions that unite people in marriage and friendship and so forth. And I think we all know in our heart of hearts, even if we say otherwise, bottom line is all our human relationships are conditionally based. And that truth that we carry around inside our heart has potential debilitating effects in our relationships. On the one hand... It can create a performance base I need to measure up to another person's expectations in love. I mean, if, if, you, if what drew you together were certain conditions, then you can easily get into the trap of, of realizing I need to maintain those conditions. Otherwise, this person may not love me anymore. So you got to bring your A game. You got to make sure you look your best. You are your best. That that your wife still laughs at your jokes. And when she stops laughing at your jokes, then pretty soon you find yourself trying to measure up and tell new jokes to get her to laugh. But if one of the things that drew you to each other was the fact that she liked your sense of humor and she's not laughing anymore, well, then you can real easily try to live up, try to perform, try to gain, try to measure up to the expectations of another person. So Another example, if you are a Christian man and, and you know that your wife wants you to be a spiritual leader and you feel pressure from her, but you know you're not, you can easily find yourself in a position of now I need to measure up uh, because what happens if somebody else comes along that's a better spiritual leader than me? So you find yourself trying to measure up and perform in the relationship, which when it comes right down to it is nothing more than a subtle form of slavery. It's what it ends up becoming. And there are very few that can live up to the expectations of another person or perform. So another side effect is it creates a sense of doubt in the person. I can't, do they really, are they going to leave me? Do they, because I feel unworthy. I'm not the person I used to be. It can create doubt, suspicion in the relationship. It can create insecurity in your own heart. Uh, because you know fundamentally that your relationship is condition-based. feel insecure, especially as you get older. and You don't look the same. And then that can produce a sense of neediness or a sense of demand in the relationship so that if you happen to be a woman and you feel insecure, that you may start demanding more things of your husband because you want to feel secure. But a demanding, needy relationship is a self-perpetuating neediness. 
it, it is. So my wife and I use this as an example. If, if I tell my wife I'll use me because I don't want to embarrass her, if I say, sweetheart, I just don't feel loved by you, but would really feel good if you, to, to, to feel loved by you if you go get me a you know, brand new DeWalt tool set. I feel really loved. <laughs> There's no subliminal message in that whatsoever. And, and she's, she felt uh, guilty, like, oh, man, I, I want him to feel loved. She went out and bought a DeWalt tool set and brought it to me. It wouldn't, it wouldn't secure me. You know why? Because I would suspect that she's doing it out of obligation. So if the, if the wife's feeling insecure and she, she says, sweetheart, if you just bring flowers once in a while and you get in your car, go out and buy a dozen roses, it's not going to fill her need because she suspects you're doing it out of obligation because you have to. So I say it's self-perpetuating, that sense of insecurity, trying to draw security from other people. And if it doesn't create this sense of measuring up performance-based relationship or doubt or insecurity, then it can create fear, this conditioned-based relational pond that we swim in. Fear. So, you know, if, if one of the conditions that brought you, and again, I'm using marriage again, but it can use friendships too. One of the conditions that brought you together was your, you know, size four or size six shape, and then you hit your 50s, and now it's a size 16. It's easy to feel like, be afraid, maybe he's not going to love me anymore. And it's both sides of the fence, and not just women who feel this way, men feel this way as well. What happens when, you know, that six-pack turns into a keg? <laughs> you kind of wonder, is my wife going to love me when I'm dumpy? You know, you, the handles are growing. Remember my, my wife, this is a funny story. My wife, um, when we first started the dating process, she said there were two things she didn't want in a man. And one was that she didn't want to marry a guy who had red hair. Now, I had reddish hair, so that was strike one. <laughs> Second, she said, I don't want to marry a pastor. <laughs> At that time, she shared that with me. I wasn't going to be a pastor. I think I was a history major, a music major, or something like that. And I felt the call of God in my life, and I sat down with her in Carl's Jr. I said, sweetheart, I think the Lord's leading me into ministry. And she's just like, oh, you know? That's the truth. It's absolute truth. She'll tell you that that's the truth. That was strike two. Then my hair fell out. I don't think, she says, actually, I look better without it than I did with it, so that's good. Got rid of the redness, and so that worked. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is, is those are the things, if we really get down to it, that we feel, and that's how we think, and that's how we process relationships. You know, how many strikes am I going to get before she doesn't want to be with me anymore, and somebody else comes along, and somebody that has those conditions that we had when we first met? I mean, that's what people deal with. So my simple point is that that is like, that is the collective experience of human relationship, is that fundamentally our human relationships horizontally are condition-based. Whether we want to say it or not, they are. We know that, which is why we struggle with our insecurities and our fears and, and our doubts and suspicions and our trying to measure up. So is it any wonder then, if that's the collective experience, and that's what experience in human relationships is teaching us inside, that when it comes to understanding God's love for us, that we begin to interpret God by our experience. All of a sudden, everything we've learned inwardly about love, that it's condition-based, we come to God and feel, okay, well, um, maybe in order to, you know, 
get the top rung and, and make it into heaven, I, I, I got to measure up and I got to perform. And so with that motivation, you start coming to church and you start reading your Bible and praying, all of which are wonderful things, but you're trying to measure up. And that is a form of slavery. And it's not, not, not only is it slavery, it's completely dishonoring to the Lord. Or you find yourself insecure in your relationship with the Lord. So you're wavering back and forth. Does he really love me? Doesn't he love me? Does he really love me? Uh, insecure, doubt, fear. And that's not where the Lord wants his people. Is afraid. Insecure. But I think we take all that baggage and that's how we interpret God's love for us. And why we struggle to believe and experience it. But it's right here, Christian, that your experience must not prevail in understanding who God is. It's the word of God, it's the cross of Jesus, and the spirit who alone can convince you of the truth of the first two. That is, we form our understanding of God's love and who God is on the basis of what he revealed to us in the Bible and what he did for us in Jesus And then we come to an understanding and a persuasion and a conviction of it by way of the Spirit teaching us those truths. That's what must prevail. And one of those truths or a verse that everyone here should have, not just in their minds, but embedded deep into their heart as to who God is and his love for me is Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. It is a well-worn but under-believed verse. We're right in the middle, Paul says, describing God's love for his people. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking of his people, chosen people. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is so much packed into that simple sentence that can set your soul free and secure you and satisfy you in this stream of God's love. The first part tells us that God shows us his love, which means it's seeable, at least by way of history. We can see how God has loved us in action. We can see it, which means we can ponder it, we can consider it, we can meditate upon it. It's understandable at some level. So he shows it to us. But he shows it to us, that's the first part of the verse, he shows it to us along two lines, and that's the second half of the verse, in terms of time and in terms of depth. In terms of how deep God's love is for his people, that's the last phrase of that verse. Christ died for us. Now, one measure of a person's love is the value of what's given. So, if you know, if you give your wife a four-carat diamond ring on your wedding day, she's going to feel loved because diamonds are forever. If you give her a cubic zirconia, she's not going to feel loved because it's a piece of glass. Well, the last statement there tells us that God reached down and he gave us the priceless, valueless, that's not the right word, immeasurable value, the most important treasure of heaven, and that is God himself. There's nothing more valuable, there's nothing more immeasurable than God himself. And right here we find that God the Father gave God the Son. And not only did he give him, but he died. He gave God to us and died in our place 
so that we might have his life. So in terms of value, if you put the entire created universe on one side of a big scale and all of life in it, all of the planets and galaxies in one side and you put Jesus on the other, the value would plummet on the Jesus side because he is immeasurably valuable to God. There is no greater love that God has than he has for his son. And yet, God shows us his love and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. There is nothing more full or more demonstrable than that. There isn't. That's the depth. You're not going to get any fuller expression. Nothing. Which is why the cross is so important and central and needs to be a daily part of realizing God's love for you in the here and now, that that's the value that he placed on your life. That's, that's the depth of it. But then the phrase right before it is equally important. Because it tells us that while, that's a word regarding time, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, the illuminating part is, is that God's love came to you as his people, not when you had cleaned yourself up, not when you were saints, not when you believed, but it came to you while you were still a sinner, which is a categorical statement. In other words, it came to you while you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It came to you while you were ugly. It came to you when you were morally dysfunctional and unworthy. That means it is unconditional. His love for you predated your conversion. You never measured up to it to begin with. He chose to love you while you were in that state. And that should liberate every single Christian who gets that in their heart from the idea that I have to measure up to God or I have this performance that I have to put on, otherwise he won't approve of me. He loved you before you chose him. He says to his people throughout the Bible, I loved you. I loved you from everlasting to everlasting. I loved you before I formed the sun and the planet. I had your name on my mind and I loved you. I loved you before you were born and I loved you when you were a toddler and I loved you when you were a teenager. That I, I loved you when you screwed up and I loved you when you were by grace successful. That I loved you before you were pretty. I loved you when you had bad breath, bad hair, and you just looked ugly. I loved you when you were thin, and I loved you when you're big. I love you when you worship me in the purity of faith, and I love you even when you wander. My love will never leave you. And that's what the Bible screams to God's people. And there are no exceptions, no ifs, ands, or buts. When God chooses to love, he loves to the end. He loved you before you were a saint. He loved you and made you a saint. His love will change you, and his love will bring you home. That's the shelter in which the Christian is to find safety, security, and satisfaction. God loved me while I was a sinner. That's the gospel. And why measuring up will never work. Because God wants to prove something through all of eternity. He wants to show us the immeasurable depth of his grace. And that grace means that it's all from him. 
And I'll tell you, when, 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 when that truth begins to sink in, and it's a truth you revisit every day, if not every moment, if you could. No, God loved me while I was a sinner, and I love his love. Man, I've, I want security in his love, safety in his love, and I want satisfaction in his love. Then you don't need to feel unworthy any longer because Christ made you worthy. You don't need to seek approval from God. Christ gave you approval from God on the basis of his death and resurrection. You don't have to measure up because Jesus measured up for you. So we're not in slavery any longer. We're sons and daughters freed to stand in the light of God's love and reciprocate with love and praise and blessing. And that's where the Lord wants us to live. And I will tell you, when your life is saturated with this single truth and your heart is overwhelmed and overflowing with the sense that God loves you and you find your security in his love, then, then we have the potential to love other people without strings. And we can begin to learn to love others unconditionally. Because when you're full of the love of the Lord, it's easier to love freely rather than trying to fill your life and secure your life and to satisfy your love, life in broken, fallen, changing people. So you want to be the best husband and friend you can be? Saturate your life with the fact that God loved, does love, and will love you forever. And when you're satisfied and secure in that, then you'll learn how to love your wife without strings and kids without strings and your friends without strings much better. That's being secure in the love of God and being satisfied with the love of God. That is the backbone of the Bible. That the Lord takes pleasure in those who hope in his steadfast love. And that's what I hope you do. Hope in his steadfast, unfailing love. And if you're here this morning and you don't know him, but you've heard God speak to you, like that's the gospel, that's Christianity, then I just want to encourage you to believe it, trust it, give yourself to it, embrace it. And if you want to talk to somebody more about it, come talk to myself or John or somebody on the stage or another pastor because we, we just want to tell you that God is amazing, loving, gracious, merciful, and kind. Father, we thank you so much for your love and your goodness. Thank you that um, our salvation is not in our hands, it's in your hands. Um, that our, our future is not in our hands, it's in your hands. That our past was not in our hands, it is in your hands. I pray for each individual here, for my brothers and sisters, that you would saturate their lives with a conscious awareness and satisfaction and security of your eternal love. And for those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would open eyes to see that this is, this is the most amazing truth ever imagined. We just thank you and praise you. There's nothing we can really do but just simply say thank you and praise you and we love you. In Christ's name, amen.